Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. amen. You know, we look at the news around us and see how terrible things look, and there's another attack over here, and there's some threat over here, and it's very easy as Christians to begin to look at all of these things in the same terms that the world looks at them. And this is a scary world to live in right now. But we're not of this world, are we? No, we are no. the kingdom of God that's been left here and deposited it. And the, verse, the phrase that keeps rising up in me when I look at those situations is, is, the, is, this, is, the, the, is what Mordecai said to Esther. Perhaps we've been put here for such a time as this. And I believe we have. This means God's chosen us. God's chosen you and me to be here on an assignment at this particular time. And it's tempting to look at ourselves and say, why would God put me here now? But that's not our business to decide that. That's God's judgment and God's purpose. All our job is to do is to respond to that. So we live in what Paul refers to as very perilous times. The other thing that's perilous about the times that we live in is not just the outside threat, but Paul also says about these times that we live in, in this time, many, not a few, not some, but many are going to fall away. We're talking about church people, people that come to church regularly, people that tithe. They're going to fall away and they're going to kind of fade off because there are many deceptions and distractions that are going to come, come upon us. And I believe they're already coming to distract us and to pull us away from what we're here to do. And then, then the writer of Hebrews warns us in these times in particular, there's things we need to make sure we do. And one of most of all is to not forsake the assembling together. All the more as we see that day approaching. And that day's a whole lot closer today than it was when that letter was written to the Hebrew believers. So what I want to talk to you about, last year I talked to you about, also about the times we're in, and I talked to you about compromise and not compromise, and we looked at three Hebrew children that stood the test when the ultimate test was thrown at them, and we saw what allowed them to come to that place. It wasn't just that they got up that day and decided to just gird themselves up and be strong in their faith, but we saw that what, what Nebuchadnezzar used to prepare the, the, the nation to, to, to bow to that idol was the music that they listened to and the food that they ate. And we saw that Daniel and the three Hebrew children sanctified themselves. They didn't eat what everybody else was eating. eating. And by doing that, they strengthened themselves so in the day of testing, they could stand. And we then looked at the, what food are we being tempted to eat that's of this world? Are we being tempted to, to require the nourishment, not just physical food, but the, but the natural things that we use to entertain ourselves, we use to encourage ourselves? Are we, are we sustaining ourselves on what the world sustains us on? Because when the push comes to shove, when the test comes, that's what's going to either cause us to compromise or to stand. Well, I want to look at this day from a little different point of view. I'm going to look back or begin to look back at a time in the history of Israel, which I think is very significant to us. God has always worked through leaders, through men, through individuals, not always a man, but usually an individual, a person. And he's led through that. When God wanted to form a nation for himself, he didn't pick an existing nation. He chose a man, Abraham. And through that man, God birthed and caused to grow a people that he called his own son, his firstborn. They were precious, not only just because he loved them, but because they had a purpose on this earth to be an example to the world of what it's like to know and be in a covenant relationship with the true and living God that nobody else could see. And then when Abraham passed on, his son Isaac took over. And then when he passed on, God led through his son Jacob. And then at that point, they come down into, into Egypt to be sustained through a great worldwide famine. And God leads them through, through Jacob's son, uh, uh, Joseph, 
to be led and sustained. But then a Pharaoh rises up who didn't know Joseph. Then Joseph dies off and the children of Israel end up in bondage until after hundreds of years they cry out for, a deliver and Mos- for deliverance and God sends a man, Moses, through that man to lead them out of Egypt and lead them into the place that God has called them to come into, the promised land. And to get to the e- promised land through Egypt, he had to lead them through a wilderness. And God used a man to lead them through the wilderness. It wasn't easy. They rebelled. They caused, they caused all kinds of difficulty. They claimed, they complained, but they got there. And then when it comes time to enter the promised land, Moses dies and the people are now led by Joshua. And they come into the promised land and they defeat and conquer much of the territory. They don't conquer all of it. And the book of Judges begins by saying, and Joshua's dead. No other leader rises up. In this initial time, the, the, fam, the, nation, the tribes begin to mop up the work that's still done. There's still some nations that haven't been conquered and overcome. And they do it, but they don't do it completely. They leave some. In the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, they don't complete their assignment. In other words, they didn't fully carry out what God told them to do because he told them to drive out all the inhabitants and he told them he would empower them and he would, he would fight the battle for them, but they had to go into the battle. And I think as we look at the time we're in now, there's a battle we have to fight and we often get overwhelmed because we ha- how can we win a battle in a world that's just so overwhelming and has such momentum now? Because the battle's not ours, it's the Lord's battle. But we have to go into the battle so that he can fight the battle for us. And, and ju- judges is such a time because what happens is that because they didn't fully obey God, what happens is they leave their enemies and they in- eventually begin to intermarry with the enemies, with these enemies, and they begin to settle and adopt their practices and customs, and they begin to intermarry. Their children begin to intermarry with them, and the and the line between the the the, the profane, the line between these pagan nations and God's chosen people begins to get blurred. And so the people begin to backslide and you go through a cycle where the people would rebel and they would backslide and, and then, then they would end up being conquered by one of these, by the, either the Amalekites or the Midianites. Some group would come in and conquer them and, and then they would repent and God would raise up a temporary leader called a judge. And that judge, such as Samson and others, and, 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 and Deborah and others, would overcome that particular enemy, and then they would have a time of peace and prosperity, and then they would eventually backslide and settle in with the other nations that they were around. And then a nation would come in and take them over again, and this same cycle would come over and over and over. And this went through a period of about 250 to 300 years. And we come to the end of the book of Judges, and there's a very powerful statement that sums up that time that they lived in. The last verse in the book of Judges says, And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own sight. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his sight. It's Joshua, it's Judges, um, it's Judges 21, 25. There was no king in Israel. There was no leader in Israel. There was no one in authority over the nation as there had been before. There was no one to establish what was right and wrong. And so the people did what was right in their own sight. Think about that a second. It's not that the people did what was wrong. 
it's not like they knew it was right and they just chose not to do it was right. They just decided, look, hey, I know it's right, but I'm just going to, I want to be wrong anyway. I want to just go out and have a good time. No. Everyone defined for themselves what was right. Come on. Look out. Everyone Look out. looked at themselves and at their world around them, and they said, I have the right to decide what's right for myself. Come on, sir. So it wasn't as if they were wrong. They chose their own right and their own wrong. And it occurred to me that's very much like the world you and I live in. Come on. I'll be 70 this year. I don't feel it, and, but I'm, that's what this calendar says. <laughs> that's what my driver's license says. And I only mention that because I was raised at a time, and there are others of you, they may, you may not be 70, but were raised at a time when our culture, our society, stood had a common understanding of what was right and wrong. And it was essentially the Ten Commandments. And it was believed in and adhered to. I mean, it wasn't followed perfectly, but everybody kind of agreed that what was right and wrong, and whether they were Christians or Jews, at least we had the common agreement of our society uh, was right and wrong. That's long gone. And Apostle Scales mentioned the Gen Xs and the Gen Ys and the Gen Is. And, but there is the predominant philosophy in the, in the world today is called postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And what it basically teaches is there is no such thing as truth. Yeah. I mean, you went from what I was raised to believe in to what's called situational ethics, which, well, you know, we don't have any absolute truth, but, you know, it's kind of have to depend on the circumstances, and you kind of have to look at what the situation is, and then we'll, we'll kind of come to a consensus of what truth is. But now what our youngest generation is being taught really is no such thing as truth. I mean, if you think about it, that's self-defeating because that's a truth they're trying to propose. So if there's no such thing as truth, how can that be a truth? But the idea is everyone gets to be their own God. I get to decide not only what is truth in this situation, but I'm the one that has the right to decide what's truth for me, and you get to decide what's truth for you. And that fits in with the predominant philosophy that really is no God. Because, you see, you've got to get rid of God in order to feel good about doing what you want to do. Because if there is a God, you can be doing what you want to do, but you know someday there's going to be a day of accountability. But if there's no God, then there's never going to be an accountability. So I have to define God away so that I can live the way I want to do without feeling any guilt. And that's very much the age in which the church today finds itself. It's very much what Isaiah wrote in his day because in Isaiah 59, 14, he says, Justice is turned back, righteousness stands far off, and truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. The problem is that's creeping into the church. That philosophy, that attitude towards life is creeping in the church. We really believe, we're living, I feel as if I'm living in a foreign country to what I was raised in. I don't recognize this nation anymore. I love this nation, but I don't recognize it anymore because it is in the hands of a spirit. I'm not talking politics because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're in the hands of a spirit that really is preparing for the spirit of the Antichrist. It is that same spirit. 
And that's why we're here. But we've got to wake up and recognize not just the times we're in, but what we're dealing with, what we're standing against, and who we are and what we're to do. And so, as Isaiah says, the reality is that truth has fallen in the street, but the problem is it's creeping into the church. Just as the standards of the, of the pagan nations began to creep into Israel in the time of the judges, because the, the, the Hebrews began to intermarry with, they began to blend their families together with, they began to not have any clear defining of what it meant to be a Hebrew anymore, and they began to let the attitudes and the idols, which don't have to be little dolls, they can be things that you trust in, things that you base your life on, value systems, they began to creep in just as they've begun to creep into the church. And here's the problem. Over in First uh, Timothy, and I want to read that quickly to you, First Timothy chapter 3. Paul's preparing Timothy, his son in the faith, to deal with these kinds of things. And he says in verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Not in the world, but in the house of God. Because if we can't conduct ourselves this way in the house of God, there's no chance of doing this in the world. That's how you conduct yourself in the house of God. Look at this. Which is the church of the living God. Not a concept, not a doctrine, not a principle, but we are the church of the living God. We are the body of Christ in the world today. The church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground or foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar of truth in the world today. We're the only hope of truth that the world has today. And if Satan can get us to compromise, if Satan get us, can get us to, to begin to look at truth the way the world looks at truth, then the foundation of truth in the world is going to crumble. Yes. We are this a pillar. See the pillar there? Yep. That holds the ceiling up. Yep. If that pillar cracks, the ceiling comes down. If the church gets confused as to truth, if the church begins to compromise as to truth, then truth itself is going to begin to crumble. And then God's plan for what he wants to do won't come about. We're it. We're the last leg of the relay race. And if we trip and fall, I don't know what's going to happen. But we're not. Now this goes back to the first statement in Joshua, in Judges, is that there was no king. There was no one in authority. And we just heard the, the importance of being submitted under somebody in authority that, to whom you're accountable. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I'm going to pick up here with then what happened with Israel. Because we come out of this time of Judges and we, there's the book of Ruth which you have to skip over and now we come into the book of Samuel. And the last of these judges was the, was the prophet Samuel. And he's born in a time when it is so corrupt that the, that the chief priest is Eli. And he is a very weak priest and a very weak father. And he has two sons that are so backslidden that they are actually committing fornication on the doorway of, of the temple. 
And God judges them because Eli won't deal with that. He won't correct his sons. But God has a provision because brought into that temple at that point is a young boy named Samuel, a a child the result of faith of his mother and a commitment to do what she vowed to God to do with his life. That when he was old enough to be weaned, she would bring him to God and give him into God's service. And God begins to speak to him because it says in the beginning of Samuel that at that time there was no revelation, there was no voice of God being heard. In, in, the, in, the, church, in the church there was no revelation. Why? Because they were backslidden. They weren't standing for the truth. And so Samuel grows up and begins to speak to the truth. Now we're going to look in chapter 8. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. And see how this relates to us. Now it comes to pass that Sam, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of the first one was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Here again, here's a great man of God, but he didn't continue that with his children. And all the elders of the church gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge over us like all the nations. And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge over us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to do, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me that I should not reign over them. Here's what's happening. The people are living in, the, in, in what's called the promised land, but they're still living among other nations that they've not, done, they've not obeyed God. And they're looking at them. They're jealous of what they have. They're looking at these are people. They have a king that they can see. That when they go out into battle, they have a man that they can see. And, and, and we don't have a king like that. But what they missed is God wanted to be their king. God wanted to be their king, to be in the unique situation of all the people on the earth that they had a king that was God Almighty. Now, one of the principles of the Bible is that the prosperity and well-being of the people was a direct, direct result of the righteousness of their king. And God was saying, I want to be your king. That means that their prosperity was going to be determined on God's righteousness. And God wanted a people in the world that others could look at and see what it was like to be in relationship with him. That's one of the reasons God chose to put them in that part of the world because it was the crossroads of some major trade routes between the east and the west. So the people coming through Palestine would pass from the, west, the great riches of the far east and come through and see, my goodness, this people, the riches that this people have far outweigh the riches that we've just seen in the east. Who is your king? Who is your king? And they'd say, Jehovah is our king. But they didn't want to do that. They wanted to be like the world that was around them and have a king that they could see. And Samuel's grieved by this. And God says, look, they didn't reject you. They've rejected me. So let's read on. Because remember we're saying there was no king. And that's why everyone did what was right in his own sight. So Samuel comes to them in verse 10. He says, he told the people of the Lord, of the Lord of the people, would ask, what, excuse me, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king that reigns over you. And he's going to say, okay, if you want to, see, little side lesson here, 
If you press God hard enough, sometimes he'll give you what you're asking for, even though it's not his will for you. And they pressed him and pressed him and pressed him. He tells them, okay, Samuel, you give them what they want. But now tell them, here's what it's going to mean. They're going to take your sons to be soldiers for their army. They're going to take your daughters to serve in the temple. They're going to take money from you to pay for their campaigns. They're going to have to build big houses for them to live in. They're going to want all kinds of things, and it's going to come from you. This is what, what's going to cost you to be like everybody else. And there is a cost to being like the world. You'll appoint captains. And he, verse 15, he'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officers and servants and he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep. He's going to tax you. <laughs> verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but we want but we will have a king over us, look at this, verse 20, that we may be like all the other nations. They wanted to be like everybody else. The church was not called to be like the world. We were not called to dress like the world. We were not called to look like the world. We were not called to talk like the world. And we were not called to think like the world. Say, well, Paul says, I became all men to all things that I may win some. Yeah, but look there, Paul was influencing them. He wasn't being influenced by the world. Most people use that as an excuse for backsliding. I'm in the bar because I want to win some of my old friends. Well, who's winning whom? They wanted to be like everybody else. That our king may judge us and may go out before us to fight our battles. And Samuel heard the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And so Samuel said to the men of Israel, go into the city. So God selects a king for them and his name is Saul. And Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And God anoints him through Samuel. And Samuel begins to enter, or Saul begins to lead them into battle, and he fights against the Philistines. And Samuel comes out to, Sam, to Saul and says, Before you go into battle against the Philistines, wait here, and I will come back because I need to offer the sacrifice before you go into battle. And so Samuel goes back home, and the enemy is lined up against them, and that they can see, the soldiers see their enemy coming up in battle array and the soldiers because they're soldiers and they're trained to react to those situations and to fight they turn to their leader to their king and says what are we going to do Samuel hasn't come and so finally the pressure gets so great on Saul he performs the sacrifice himself because the preacher showed up late he takes things into his own hands and now Samuel shows up and says why did you do this and Saul says because I was afraid of the men my soldiers. And so Saul's, Samuel just basically says, because of this, God's not going to be able to have your kingdom. You're not going to be king forever. God's going to have to limit what you're going to do. And now we're going to pick up with the next time they're in battle. We're going to go over to 1 Samuel 15. And this is what we're going to really talk about today. Starts out by saying, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me, remember we're talking about 
everybody did what was right in their own sight because there was no king. There was no leader. There was no authority. Here you have a king that's the authority and he's still doing what's right in his own sight. God orders at the beginning of this chapter, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, this is the voice of the Lord over Israel. Therefore heed the voice of the Lord, words of the Lord. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed them on the way, then they came up out of Egypt. I'm not going to go into the story, but basically they ambushed the Israelites on their way to the promised land. Now, this is God's instructions through the prophet, to the king. Now go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they, utterly destroy all that they have. Utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Both kill man and woman and infant and nursing child and ox and sheep and camel. Yeah, but why would God have them? God said, do it. (laughs) But what kind of God? God said, let me put it this way. God said, do it. (laughs) God said, do it. And how a man responds to what God says is a direct insight into who that God is to him. I'm going to say that again on this side. How we respond to what God says is a direct insight into who we believe that God is to us. We want God to be God when we get in trouble and we need that God to be great is our God. Oh, how we sing how great is our... When we're in trouble and we want that great God to bail us out. But when that great God tells us to do something, is he still that same God? God said, utterly destroy all of the Amalekites. Their women, their children, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. So God, Saul gathered all the people together, numbered them at Telem, and he goes out into battle. And Saul, verse 7, attacked the Amalekites from Hevelah by the way of Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, the auction, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to just utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now this is what God's like. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Uh, Samuel's not there. He's back home. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. I don't know about you, but I don't want God, everybody to hear God say, I re- greatly regret putting John as a pastor at Faith Christian Center. I greatly regret having appointed you as the head of that family. I greatly regret. For he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. Notice those are connected together. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. Indeed, he set up a monument 
for himself, and he has gone around and passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, for I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, Well, what then is the bleeding of these sheep that I hear in my ears? What is this? Oh, oh, said Saul. Saul said, Oh, I brought them up from the Amalekites. This is verse 15. For the people, he's king. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen so that they could sacrifice it to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice, the people disobeyed God, but we, <laughs> we utterly destroyed the rest. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. See, God's always watching He said, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of a tribe of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder of the sheep and the oxen, the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Let's stop there a second. Because that verse is often quoted. That says that, Has the Lord great delight in sacrifices and offerings as he does in obedience? It's better to obey than the sacrifice. And I've often heard that taught and thought, well, what that's basically saying, it's better to obey God than to have to pay a sacrifice for disobeying. And although that principle is true, I don't think that's what Samuel's saying here. Because remember what Saul did. Saul's excuse for not obeying is that we've done something better than what God said. We had a better idea. Now, I'm going to give Saul the benefit of the doubt that he's sincere here. What Saul's saying is, God said to utterly destroy them. When we got there, we had a better idea. So we decided to take Agag and to take the best of the sheep and oxen because we're going to do something with this that's just honoring to God. We're going to make an offering of the very best of the sheep. We weren't going to keep them. We're going to offer them to God as a sacrifice because we think that's a wonderful thing to do for God. And Samuel's saying, in God's eyes, it's better to obey Him than to do something that in your eyes looks good. And they all did what they thought was right in their own eyes. So look what goes on to happen here. Then Saul said to Samuel, oh, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There's a tremendous lesson in there for leadership. 
Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you've rejected. Notice each time he says, you've rejected the word of the Lord. You've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and he's given it to a neighbor of you who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. God, in other words, God's strength, his righteousness will not lie. It will not relent. It won't change his mind for he's not a man that he should relent or change his mind. Then he said, I've sinned. Now look at this. Yet honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people. He's concerned with his reputation. It's another lesson for leadership. Saul was more concerned by how his people saw him than he was obeying God. And even when he's caught in his sin, he's saying, now the way you're going to deal with me, please deal with me in such a way that I don't lose face in front of my people. But that's not our point here today. Verse 31. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel says, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here. So Agag came out to him cautiously. I imagine so. And Agag said, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, as your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among the women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Here's what's going on here, I believe. And this is what begins to touch us. Saul offered to Samuel his good intentions. Saul said, I know what God said, and I had a general idea of what God wanted to accomplish, and I come up with another idea here. In fact, this is a good idea, and this is really to bless the Lord. It's not for me. It's to bless the Lord. So we've taken these sheep and these oxen, and we're offering them to God. So the first thing he's saying is, he said, I, I, yeah, my, his good intentions. I know I may not have done it exactly right, but my intentions were good. I wanted to do something for God. Yes. The next thing that he says is, is an excuse. He says, and we did this because the people wanted to do it. So he offers, in, in place of complete obedience, he offers his good intentions and he offers excuses. Then I like what Agag does. Agag says, you know, a lot of time's passed, Samuel. I mean, shouldn't we, isn't it time just to let bitterness go? I mean, I know this happened a long time ago when, my, when, the, when they, when they uh, hindered Israel and they provoked Israel, but bygones ought to be, I mean, God, you're a God of forgiveness. Each of these in themselves is a legitimate point. But what God's saying is when you compare obedience with God with good points, there's no comparison. Let me put it this way. This is the way God put it to me. Although these all may be valid, in God's eyes, nothing is acceptable as a substitute for simple, complete obedience to his command. And they all did what was right in their own eyes. Saul did what was right in his own eyes. And here's what it comes down to. This is how it comes down to how we see God. What often happens with us is that although is that we reason with God 
Because what we think is we take God's commandments and somehow God's commandments together with our good judgment is we're working together with God to come up with a good solution or thing to do here. So we're partners with God. He's much smarter than I am, but I take my counsel and God's counsel together. So it's as if we do this. It's as if we, our image is God and I together are coming up with the right thing to do. But it's also the church. It's also the church. It's also you and me. God is God. This is why the very first commandment establishes that as the foundation for everything else. God announces, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, including you. Isn't this what happened in the garden? We just heard this first service, first section. The first two chapters is the way God intended for things to be. And it was blessing, prosperity, no sickness, no disease. And the entrance of all of those evils into the world today that came in then came because Satan's temptation wasn't to eat the apple, the tree, the, the fruit. Uh-huh. Satan's temptation was for them to exercise their own judgment yes. together with God's. Because notice the tree God told them not to eat of. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe the reason they were not to eat that tree is God knows how he designed man. And I believe God knows he did not design man to handle the knowledge of good and evil. Because God designed man to simply obey him because God understands good and evil. But the temptation that Satan brought to them was to learn to handle that judgment on their own. And the moment they did that, they tried to establish their own, themselves as their own God. And that's been the root of sin ever since then. God is God. God is God. And God's only, there's only two answers to God's commandment. One is obedience, and the other is disobedience. God's not asking for our input. God didn't get up on the mountain with Moses and says, you know, here's what I've come up with. What do you think? There's a little cartoon, I think it was John Zabrowski gave me, that Moses is standing here with the Ten Commandments. He says, you really think they'll buy these? (laughs) Maybe we need to express them a little differently so that the people will kind of accept that. And there's there's a trend in churches today of pastors to begin to water it down. Water it down because when I water it down, it's, it's easier for people to listen to because, you know, if I say it just the way it says here, people may not like that and, and my, I mean, my, people may leave my church. And if they leave my church, then they take their ties with them. Isn't that like 
Saul. He feared the people because if he lost them, he had no th- nothing to, to be leader over. So the point here is this. The tendency that we have, because we live in a culture that's trained us this. We live in a world that's, 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 that's saturated with this attitude of, I know there's a God, I love God, but I've still got my own ideas here. And I know God's word is a great resource for help. It's a great resource for when I get in trouble. It's a great place to go for comfort. It's a great place to go when I need healing. It's a great place to know when I need some direction and things like that. But I have my own ideas too. I mean, I don't know that I want to do that. I'll repeat this again and then we're going to go into the New Testament for a moment. We can't reason with God. Because you understand our relationship with God is not a mutual effort to arrive at what's best. Our only acceptable response is to fully carry out His will. Because if we don't, we're doing the same thing they did in the garden. We're partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. Now how does this apply to us? Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. I was Old Testament, Pastor John. These words haunt me in a good way. Verse 21. I could go back further, but for the sake of time, we'll start here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. He's talking to people in church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. We're not talking about heathens. We're we're talking about people that call him Lord. It's the same thing with God. What does Lord mean? Is the, is the, yeah, what, what does Lord mean? Does it mean someone whose name I put on my bumper sticker? What does Lord mean? It means absolute authority. Not everyone who says, says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. But he who does the will of my Father. Look what he's saying here. It goes on. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many works in your name? He's talking to people that said, I've done, what, I've done things for you. I've built churches for you. I've been out on the street for you. I've given for you. I've called you Lord. I've done wonderful things for you. Notice what he said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the will of my Father? He doesn't say, call me Lord, Lord, and do good things for me. And very often the attitude we have in the church is we're here to do good things for the Lord. No. We're here to obey Him. All He ever requires, all that it means by virtue of being Lord, is that we obey him. In other words, that we have a king. Remember, Israel had no king, and as a result, they did what they thought was right in their own eyes. We have a king. We have a Lord. And therefore, we cannot do what's right in our sight. 
but we only can do what's right in his sight. But look at here's the deception. Here's where it comes down to. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Wow. People are impressed by all the things they've done. They've built these big churches. They've gone out and done these great things. But my question is always, Lord, how do you see what I'm doing? Not am I accomplishing results that I can see that others can look at and say, wow, John, you built a great church or you did this and you did that. But what does he see? What does he see? I've had people come say, boy, you're doing a great job. I say, thank you. But my inner question is, that's great. But what only matters is, what do you see? What do you see? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many signs and wonders in your name? Look at verse 23. Then I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you. In church, calling him Lord, doing great things for him. And he said, I never knew you. Why? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. First John 3, 4 defines sin as lawlessness. Not deeds. Lawlessness. And what is lawlessness? Everyone did what was right in their own sight. I think we need to examine our own lives before we look to our left and right. God's been challenging me with this. Examining my own life to his commandments, to when he speaks to me. Do I take what his word says? Do I take when he speaks to me and do I weigh in my own mind? Do I want to do this or don't I want to do this? Because when I do that I'm still doing what I think is right in my own sight. And I believe the reason we don't see more power in the church, I believe that we don't see the authority the church has able to be exercised, is for the very thing, and my people in our church have heard this before. In Matthew, Mark chapter 5, Matthew chapter five, 8, excuse me, verse 5, it's a story of the centurion. This is, this is, this is, not a Jew. This is a Gentile. And he comes to Jesus and says, my servant's lying home sick of palsy. Jesus, before he can say anything, says, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion says, no, no, that's not what I was going to ask you, which shows you Jesus' willingness to come and heal. He didn't even wait for the centurion to say how, what he wanted him to do. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. But I noticed something about you. He says, you're somebody who's in authority, under authority, as well as in authority. Because what he says, actually, he says, I understand you because I also am somebody under authority and in authority. Jesus himself was perfectly under the Father's authority. He said, I only say what my Father tells me to say. And the key word there is only. And only do what I see my father doing. And the centurion says, I recognize that about you. He says, because you see, I'm a soldier. I'm an officer. 
And I am both under authority yes. and I am in authority. Yes. So when I say to my soldiers, go, guess what they do? They go. And when I tell them to come, the way I know they're under authority is when I tell them to go, they go. This isn't rocket science. And when, you know, I found in my life when I complicate it, when I get into all the abstractions and the permutations, I'm beginning to delay so that I can figure out a way to not do it. And I've learned this also. When the Spirit of God speaks something to me, when I start thinking about it, when I pull it up this 18 inches, now my brain gets involved in analyzing good and evil to figure out whether I really want to do this or not. And the centurion says, because I recognize you're just not only in authority, but you're under authority, you don't have to come and lay hands. You just have to speak the word. I recognize the authority of your word. And maybe the problem the church has, why we're not, we know we have, we have authority, we know, we, be, we know the scriptures, but why don't we see it flowing? Is it possible because we're not under authority? Because authority is something that flows. And I've used this example at FCC. In the springtime, which is coming, when you've planted your flowers, you get out there and you want to take that hose and you want to spray the seeds or the grass. And if you get out there and you open that nozzle and nothing's coming out, what's the first thing you're going to go do? You're going to go make sure that the hose is connected to the faucet, aren't you? Oh, I didn't connect it to the... Because water can't flow out of the nozzle unless it's flowing into the hose. Is it possible that authority can't flow out of the church if it's not also flowing into the church? We want to be... The fun part is spraying the hose. The challenging part is being under the authority. And in the day and age that you and I live in, not only, I believe, is it essential for the church to exercise its power, I believe it's also, listen carefully, essential for protection. We love Psalm 91. It talks all about God's protection and provision in times of trouble, in times of plaguing. It says, the plague shall not come near my dwelling. All those things. But it all starts out with a condition. He who dwells. Not visits. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. You know where the secret place is? It's right up underneath Him. And you can't be right up underneath Him and not be under His authority. You can't be right up underneath him and do what you think is right in your sight. So in addition to it being the source of the flow of God's authority in the church, it's also, I believe, the source of God's protection for the church. If you go out for lunch, it's either snowing or raining. And if you walk out without an umbrella, guess what? You're going to get wet. And if you come back here and say, Pastor John, I got wet when I got outside. And I'm going to say, did you have an umbrella with you? Oh, yeah. Did you put it up? No. (laughs) God's provided an umbrella in these horrible 
difficult, dark times so that his church is protected. But that umbrella is under his secret place, which means we've got to be under his authority, which comes back to seeing him for who he really is. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the world, out of your sin, out of your bondage, out of your spiritual death. I brought you out of that and I brought you into adoption as my son literally to be joined to my son. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. Because I suspect that most of us, if we were to stand under the bright light of your truth right now in our inner man, that most of us come up lacking in some area. We're grateful that you are a merciful, forgiving God. We're grateful that you are a father that because you love us will correct us and discipline us. And your method is to first of all discipline us with your word. And so, Father, today, in this room, we are a group of men who love you. That's why we're here. We're a group of men who want to follow you and please you and serve you. That's why we're here on a Saturday morning. But we're also a man who are in need of help. We're a man that are in need of, of correction, of mercy, and of the power of your spirit to work in the depths of our heart where our will is. And we have the hope because in your word you promised that you are at work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. So we come to you right now this morning and we ask you by the light of your Holy Spirit to shine deep in the dark areas of our will and reveal to us those deep secrets and then to show us the mercy that you have and to strengthen us that we may be able to live not just lives that are pleasing to you, that we may live that life of surrender and follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul and says that I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, and gave himself for me. Let me end with this, because it's something God has been opening my eyes to. I just replace, I begin to talk to people. I have to share this. I've been reading after some people that have been gone home over 100 years ago, some old fathers of faith. And I began to hear a refrain in them that they learned, they learned to walk in the oneness of Christ that, that he talks about in John 14 and John 15. And so I began to read through those two chapters very slowly every day. And what began to jump out in me in John 15, something I've taught many, for many years, but it really hit me in a different way. And Jesus said, I am the vine, for us is a tree, and you are the branch. And I was really on my knees one day just praying, meditating about this, and suddenly I saw it. A branch has no identity of its own. You don't look at a branch and call it something. If you call it anything, you call it an elm branch or an oak branch, and you, it gets its 
identity from the tree it came from. So it ha I have no identity of my own. My identity is I am in Christ. A branch has no life of its own. You disconnect it from the tree, it cannot live. It has no life of its own. That means I have no life of my own. A branch has no purpose of its own. Its only purpose is to allow the tree to bear fruit through it. That means I have no purpose of my own. And I began to discover there are many things and cares and concerns that I have in my life that aren't the cares and concerns that Jesus has ordained for me. And those are things I need to let go. They're the things the enemy uses to wear me down. A branch has no identity of its own. It has no life of its own. It has no purpose of its own. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the only thing we're commanded to do in there is to abide in the vine, and he will produce it through us. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, let's give